Hi there, I'm Diego Martinez, and welcome to a new episode of Tunes, a podcast about the songs we vibe to. This is a show where we take an underrated music anthem and explore its legacy with commentary from our tune architects, producers, songwriters, arrangers, engineers, and the performers themselves. On this occasion, we're joined by singer Alicia and Grammy-nominated producer Mark Berry, who will discuss the making and enduring appeal of their 1984 dance record, All Night Passion. It was a dance song to me. I didn't know it was going to become a song that I would be singing for close to 40 years now. You know what I mean? It was just an amazing opportunity to have. I think it's just a dance floor pleaser. When you hear that synthesizer, na, 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 at the very beginning, I mean, instantly you know what the song is. And then when the drums come in, you know exactly what it is. And I just think that any mix that can get a crowd crazy will stand the test of time. You know, sometimes it's just so hard not to think of a time without social media. And consider that the young music stars of today have it so easy with all possible platforms at their reach to unveil their work, be it YouTube, TikTok, SoundCloud, or Bandcamp, just to name a few. There have been many instances of people uploading their songs online. And then, before they knew it, they were global superstars. One notable case is rapper Lil Nas X, who only started making music about a year before his 2018 track, Old Town Road, broke all records and catapulted him to influential status. Things were slightly different back in 1982, the year when then 14-year-old Alicia Ann Itkin had her life completely changed after a demo tape she cut with a rock band landed in the hands of a record producer called Mark Berry and led to the release of her first single, All Night Passion, two years later. The song peaked at number four on Billboard's Hot Dance Club chart and was even a smash hit in some European countries. The doors of a music career busted wide open for this broken teenager, yet it was something that she had been preparing for since she was a toddler. The fourth of five children, Alicia had a keen interest in singing from the very beginning. And though it was all fun and games at first, this encouraged her parents Lillian and Al to contact a vocal coach with whom she trained her pipes and acquire the basic skills that would later guide her musical journey. As a young, young kid, I would always be singing in the car. They'd always have the radio on. I hate to date myself, but my parents had eight-track tapes. And those were in and out of the car. And they were of all these standard artists that, to this day, when I hear them, they're legends to me. It was Barbara Streisand. I could even go further back. She was my favorite growing up, honestly. And um, at eight years old, they decided that I should go for singing lessons because they didn't want me to hurt my voice in any way, shape, or form. When I listen back now, I did need singing lessons or I needed to grow up or both. But, you know, there is a technique in singing. Some people have a, a natural gift. And um, as I said, I took lessons from eight. So I kind of cultivated, I guess, my sounds. And as at eight years old, you're certainly not going to sound like as you grow older. And everybody always said to me, when you get older, you're going to have a bigger voice. And I kind of had a nice voice at a young age. But when you listen back, you could hear the maturity sometimes comes with age. 
I have to say I didn't love it as a kid. But as a kid, you don't realize how important all of that structure and all the, um, you know, like when you're going to build a building, the structure, the base is so important. And as I got older, it took me a long time, but I realized that really was important. All those lessons that I was not so happy to go to because it was a lot of warm ups and basic skills that she did teach me that I still sing when I warm up to this day. It was really good basic skills. And I had all of that, all those issues, but she was such a nice woman and she was in my neighborhood. My mother dropped me off. My mother waited for me. Sometimes my father also would come in. They would hear me sing. And eventually I did like with this teacher a recital so that we would be able to showcase what we were learning. I sang probably about four songs. And the first song I cried when I was done, people were clapping for me. And I just, I was overwhelmed. I didn't know how to receive it. I wasn't ready for it. And I was young. Maybe I wasn't eight. I might've been a little older. It was soon after that though. I, I remember being really young. And as a kid, all I wanted to do was sing songs. I didn't really want to do all those warm-ups, but she knew what she was doing. My parents knew what they were doing. And as a kid, I had to understand growing up that that was the most important part of the whole thing. Certainly, I had the best parents. They supported all of us. But for some reason, my father was able to push me <laughs> to sing in front of people. I don't know. They just saw something in me. And my father thought if people would hear a record of mine, I wouldn't have to go around and sing to everybody. They would be able to hear me at their will, you know. So which I think is a great thing that he thought of, because at the time, again, I was a kid. I wouldn't think of any of that future or, you know, anything like that. And he really was very influential. When I started to perform with my records, with all my passion and thereafter, they came with me. I was 15 turning 16 and they came with me and we did all clubs all over the United States and a few places in Europe. We went and it was all exciting. And they were very much a part of my life. I wasn't traveling without them. I was young and they were really supportive. So I'm lucky I came from that. Moving past her initial shyness and comfort level, Alicia developed confidence and started to really hone in her skills as a performer, acting for senior citizens and community centers as a member of a little theater group. In high school, she was your average teenager, being heavily involved in cheerleading, functions, and plays with her fellow classmates. I was always in the chorus in school from middle, junior high school, I called it. And in high school, they did have some plays. A lot of them, the kids put on totally themselves. We would have a song. I remember I did um, Open Arms from Journey, and we changed the words. That was the thing that we did and kept the music and changed the words to fit the play that we were doing at the time. And I have good memories. I loved high school. I loved doing all of that. And again, I was taking singing lessons. I was taking dancing lessons. My mother told us we should take acting. I did it with my younger sister. And we just always were trying to learn new things and get better at what eventually became my career, not knowing it then. But it was just something to keep us out of trouble and uh, something we enjoyed. It became perfectly clear for her parents, especially her father, Al, that in order to effectively showcase Alicia's musical versatility to record executives and local TV producers, she needed to have a demo tape. After joining a rock band in ninth grade that didn't do much, Alicia teamed up with a group of older male musicians 
who aptly called themselves the babysitters, to create the soundscape of her demo. I would have to say my parents found this band, The Babysitters. My father got us into the studio. He only wanted me to have a demo. So that was the main goal. We practiced in my house, in the living room. I don't know how my neighbors didn't want to um, throw us out of the neighborhood, but we did that a bunch of times. We would have been happy being a, a band, but somehow they were older than me. I w- that's why the name of the band was The Babysitters. The guys all had careers and families and everything. And I was, I had to be 14 then, probably 14, maybe turning 15. And it just was any opportunity for people to hear all of us. It didn't matter. Even back then when I had my first demo, if anything would have came of that, that would have been great. If anything would have happened with my ninth grade band, that would have been fine also. You never know what career paths anything would take. It just so happened this worked out. And in what way it worked out, the Itkins had sent Alicia's demo tape to several record companies. And in a strange twist of fate, it landed in the lap of an experienced engineer and producer who had over a decade's worth of work with some of the greatest artists of all time. Mark Berry started his illustrious music career at the age of 16, when he flew to London straight out of graduating from high school and arrived at the doorsteps of Air Studios, a recording, mixing, and mastering facility owned by legendary Beatles producer Sir George Martin. Barry absorbed his surroundings and earned his chops assisting on orchestral and classic rock productions. His first engineering assignment was a major one. Carly Simon's 1972 breakthrough album, No Secrets, which featured the number one single, You're So Vain. Barry returned to the States in the mid-70s, and by the end of the decade, he was staff engineer and in-house A&R producer for an indie label called Vanguard, primarily known for an eclectic catalog of jazz, rock, folk, and blues recordings by artists such as Joan Baez, Buddy Guy, and Country Joe and the Fish. While the label started to embrace disco and began releasing television singles from Fonda Ray, Carol Williams, Posez, and Ronnie Griffith that were big on the gay and high-energy circuit, Mark Berry paid close attention to the emerging hip-hop scene of early 80s New York and engineered records by John Roby, Arthur Baker, and the seminal Man Parish track hip-hop bebop. With an impressive and start-studded track record, he was now eager to produce his own material. But he needed to do some convincing to Vanguard's heads, brothers Maynard and Seymour Solomon. At one point, I would go to Maynard Solomon, who was the president of Vanguard Records, uh, along with his brother, Seymour. And I'd say, Maynard, I want to produce records. And he'd go, no, 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 you're not a producer. You're an engineer. You're a good mixer. Good engineer. So I said, OK. And then I go back to him, you know, six months later. I said, Maynard, I want to make records. He goes, no, no, no. Listen, uh, no clients. Guys are coming in from the outside to work with you. It's not costing me anything to have you around, right? Because 
people are coming in from the outside, like Baker and Roby and Tommy Boy Records and Eddie O'Loughlin from Next Plateau. And, you know, they would come to Vanguard to work with Mark Berry. So then finally one day, at one point, I got the Billboard dance chart and I had 10% of the chart records that my, my name was on that I mixed and or engineered. So I highlighted, <laughs> this is so silly. I highlighted the records that I did and I slid it under Maynard's door. And I said, Maynard, call me. So Maynard picks it up under his door and calls me on the studio phone and says, come up here. What is this? You know? So I go up there and I show him. I said, listen, I got 10% of the chart. I want to produce. So he says, okay, I'm going to let you produce, but you've got to find me a great artist and you got to find me a great song. Betty Oshinsky worked in the accounting department at Vanguard and she would gas up her car at an Esso station in Canarsie that was owned by a guy named Al Itkin, who was Alicia's father. Al would converse with the, Al was a great guy. Betty Oshinsky would tell you, yeah, I work at Vanguard Records. He'd go, oh, my daughter, she's a singer, blah, 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 she's doing this, doing that, you know? So I went to Betty and I go, oh, you know, Maynard wants, you know, I, Maynard let me produce, right? And I said, I need, I need a singer. I got to get a singer. She goes, oh, I got to go. She's 15, Alicia. They put a meeting together and we clicked. Not so much with Alicia. I clicked with the parents, Al and Lily and Itkin. And, uh, and we were both from Brooklyn. I was from Sheepshead Bay. They were from Canarsie. So uh, it worked out great. I worked with a guy named Rick Tarbox, who wrote the All Night Passion record. And I said, you know, I think I got a singer for you on this. So I took the track of All Night Passion and the pictures of Alicia. And she had some, uh, some band demos that she, she was singing in a rock band at 15, right? And I presented it to Maynard. Maynard looks at it and goes, okay, you know. And then he hears the song and he's like, okay, this is a good song. So he's hemming and hawing and then he, um, he writes a check for 2,500 bucks and he slides it across the desk and he says, if you fucking lose this money, it's coming out of your salary. <laughs> so I would gulp, you know, oh my God, you know, 2,500 bucks to 1982 was like, oh my God. I think he was just looking for a, a match. He was up and coming also to some degree. He definitely had a nice background for himself of engineering. And he has a long list of um, history that I didn't even know about. When I met Mark, I was 15 years old. We went to a studio out in Long Island. I lived in Brooklyn, so it was like a far ride for me. It didn't seem you know, uh, like a quick anything. And before I actually met him, he was talking to my father for months probably to try to get us together he sent me the demo of all my passion the funny thing is now I, I realized when i went to the studio to record it the tape player i was using was very slow so all my passion was really dragged out long almost to the point where i was like i don't really like this song sure enough we get to the studio all these weeks later and I think I was only in the studio for two days recording All Night Passion, but as soon as I heard it, it sounded so much better because it was the real rhythm of the song. I went in that studio, I didn't know much about recording. And Mark really was the mastermind behind everything. The songwriter, Rick Tarbox, was there, I remember. There's probably a few more people in the studio besides my parents. And I was there in and out quick. It was two days. I did what I thought I could do. And Mark worked his magic. He had the background singers do what they had to do. I remember doing a couple of background parts with the singer and I think Rick Tarbox, also the songwriter. It was a dance song to me. I didn't know it was going to become a song that I would be singing for close to 40 years now. You know what I mean? It was just an amazing opportunity to have. 
Learning a demo when you first start out, the song's written already. Sometimes the vocal is a great vocal and sometimes it's not a great vocal and you have to put your spin on it. And that's what I was doing at the time. I mean, my voice was my voice. There was only so much I could do with it. And that's that's what I sounded like at 15 years old. And I was lucky to have the opportunity. The track had already been cut with the co-writer, Rick Tarbox, and then we needed to put the vocals on and do some overdubs. And we put all the vocals on and kind of tweaked them up and kind of got her to do some bizarre things with her voice that we kind of utilized in the 12-inch extended mix. Not singing, just noises, kind of like what we did on Hip Hop Bebop, with the barking and the laughing. And and then uh, on the 12-inch remix, I remember I was, I was doing something called Cha, Cha, Cha. inch remix and I said, oh that sounds cool you know and then you know you put in a bunch of reverb it sounds and it sounded huge right and then once you get it on the tape and you're mixing it then you can you know drench it in echo reverb delay it just to make it a little more crazier because remember you're catering to a clubs that these kids are out there they're drinking they're smoking weed whatever they're doing uh, all kinds of drugs and they just want the record to take them to another place which is what we tried to do on a lot of the mixes that was a relatively quick session vocally. I don't remember it taking a long time because she really liked the song. You know, it was a really good song. In her vocal performance, Alicia was able to demonstrate a yearning feeling, typical of a girl her age, on lyrics that perhaps were a bit too risque for a 14 or 15-year-old to sing in the early 80s. Alicia says she and her family never gave the text of All Night Passion any second thought, whereas Mark Berry thinks he actually would have given her a more appropriate song to sing than All Night Passion. I thought she was a great singer. You know, when she sang with this group that I uh, saw, I thought she was a great singer. I thought she had a great voice. And I thought, 15 years old, my God, wow. The sound of her voice was very honest and real. And, you know, her vocals were done relatively quickly, too. Like, she was a really good singer. Always on target in terms of singing. Like, always on. Once in a while, we go back and clean something up from a pitch standpoint. And then I was big on double tracking the voice back then. And that made her voice sound even bigger and stronger. In retrospect, I might have chosen some better songs as opposed to All Night Passion for a 15-year-old girl to sing. But, uh... You know, back then, it wasn't the issue that it is today. You know, I probably would have got... If I recorded that song today, I would have been crucified uh, with a 15-year-old girl. It's a weird thing, but it didn't sink in that I was that young singing a song like that. Now I have kids, and when they play whatever they play, and I'm like, there's a curse in it, I'm like, we don't need to listen to that version, you know? like. <laughs> but I don't know, it wasn't... It didn't seem dirty, you know what I mean? It wasn't like that kind. Yes, I guess you could think of it that way, but at the time it didn't. It was a passionate song. I always sang songs probably that were maybe not for an eight-year-old girl at the time or a 10-year-old person, you know what I mean? Like, I just sang a good song. Yes, there are people that would be like, you shouldn't have sung that. Nobody really ever said that to me, but I didn't look at it as like anything raunchy or dirty. My parents never said it to me. We never looked at it like that. I guess it's uh, what kind of mind you have. You could take it there or not, but um, it was an opportunity for me really to uh, have a record out and it was amazing. 
I remember we changed the words around from maybe the first verse to the second verse and switched it and it was interesting and took a long time for it to come out. I remember we recorded it in August. My father would be talking to him. Again, we weren't, we didn't have anything to do with the business at all. And my father would call him. Maybe Mark would call my father and check in and whatever. And then by the time February came around, it, it was played on a New York City radio station. And that really was the start of everything. All right, breaking down Sugar Samba, Julian Company, Park until 6 on 92K to you, the hot one. 92K to you. At that time, it was the biggest radio station for dance music. And it was amazing. We were jumping, we were screaming, we were crying. It was the best. Every time I heard it on the radio, it never got old. It was always that kind of feeling of, it's amazing because how many songs do you hear on the radio? I mean, and that you know the person. It's it's an odd dichotomy. It's like going to a movie and knowing the person on the screen. It's an odd thing. You don't really have that so much in your life forever. Monster record. I remember pulling over at a bright red Corvette, and I remember pulling over when it came on KTU, right? And it came on, and I had a mobile phone, one of the big ones with the battery pack you had to carry around. So I, uh, I called Alicia on the phone, <laughs> and, and uh, she picks up the phone. And she goes, oh my God, she's screaming out We're on KTU. We're on KTU. She's screaming up and down. The whole family's screaming, and uh, that was the start of Alicia. Now signed to Barry's management company, Alicia set out to promote all-night passion by performing in clubs she wouldn't have been able to enter because of her age. Every possible demographic, gays, straights, and teens, were entranced by the vocalist as she went on stage to do the track. Alicia was like, I like to look at it like, she was the first post-Madonna girl that really exploded on the New York City scene. You know, she went out and worked, man. She flew to nightclubs. She was doing three, four, or five nightclubs a night. You know, going to Jersey, to Long Island, to Brooklyn, to Queens, to the Bronx a night. So she was doing phenomenal business in terms of getting her fan base really riled up. A lot of people that are in the clubs, they're there to have a good time, right? So it didn't matter what kind of club I went to. I, I sang at every club in Manhattan. In that time frame, there were so many clubs. The first club I did was um, Roseland. Big club, huge dance floor. Lots of people were in there. I didn't know what I was doing. I remember Mark Berry gave me a second song to sing. I did a cover of the Turtles song, Happy Together. It was a dance version. I hated it, but it was a song that I sang to get the crowd warmed up. And then boom, I sang All My Passion. And that's what they wanted to hear. Studio 54, I was so high on their platform to sing. It was like a very weird situation to be up so high away from the audience where I like to be close to the audience. But I've had everything. I've done so many clubs over the years. I wish I had a real count. There were gay clubs. There were straight clubs. There were teen clubs, which at the time to me was great because I was one of them. And um, just over time, everybody there's they're there. Some of them were able to drink. They were there drinking, having a good time, but a lot of them were there to dance and have a good time. Maybe you were there to meet somebody, you know, the love of your life or for that night, but um, it doesn't get any better than that. The people are there, it's instant gratification. They hear you, they're singing, they know the words, and a lot of times now they do, thank God. It's just, it's a great experience, it really is. I think it's just a dance floor pleaser. When you hear that synthesizer, at the very beginning, I mean, instantly you know what the song is. 
And then when the drums come in, you know exactly what it is. And I just think that any mix that can get a crowd crazy will stand the test of time. Her debut album on Vanguard, simply titled Alicia, yielded two other singles. Two Turned On, which hit number sits on the dance charts, and its follow-up, the number one single, Baby Talk, a chart success in France, Germany, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. The runaway success of her first full-length album earned Alicia the title of Most Promising New Female Vocalist by music trade publication Cashbots and helped her score a major record deal with RCA, a label that released her second and last Mark Berry-produced offering, Nightwalkin. After the release of her 1990 album, Bounce Back, Alicia took an extended break from releasing music, which culminated in the late 90s with singles like Wherever the Rhythm Takes Me and the title song from the 1999 film Superstar. Looking back on her experience as a teenage music star, Alicia wishes she would have done a better job at taking more ownership and control of her career, making decisions that could propel her trajectory even further, and building strong connections with industry insiders and tastemakers. I wish I knew more how to get, I always called it the ball rolling, like to have the next thing to happen because even in this day and age, You're only as good as your last record, performance, anything like that. So I wish I always had something ready to roll and every aspect of that in place, meaning I always needed a producer, I needed musicians, I needed a studio, I needed a song. Song is the hardest part, getting a hit, picking the right music. That's the hardest part of everything. But um, I wish I had a little more confidence as a kid. And also when meeting certain people in the business, I never had any headbutts with anybody, whether it was a club, any performers, you know, anything like that. But I think you almost need to build like a really good, uh, back in the day, it was a Rolodex, but you know, a phone book of people that you maybe would want to work with, or maybe they would want to work with you or just network really well. And at the time I was young, I was shy, you know, I did the best I could. Alicia continues to perform sporadically on the disco and freestyle circuits and is keeping her options open to hopefully record new music. Throughout the 80s and early 90s, Mark Berry went on to mix and remix tracks for the likes of David Bowie, Stephanie Mills, Duran Duran, Joan Jett, and others. After relocating to Canada and producing alternative rock groups, Berry founded AMG, a music, film, and TV company that deals with developing and marketing for new artists, as well as music supervision and international licensing. He still produces the art record at least twice a year. Alicia and Mark Berry had lost contact for some time, but weeks before this recording, the two saw each other and reminisced about their first collaborative effort. Nearly 40 years after its release, All Night Passion refuses to die and still retains its status as an iconic dance record. That's an achievement that Alicia, in her very humble manner, is willing to receive from her peers and her fans. It's electrifying. 
it pounds for sure in those gloves. And I remember hearing it down in uh, at the garage, Larry Levan, the bass on that record, man. It's like, if you still do those woofers in the garage, it's like, oh my God, it literally just it moved you across the dance floor. We didn't even have to do anything. Just the weight of the bass in that club. And exciting, just exciting to listen to. Every four bars, we had to put something else in or create something else or cut to something else. Every four bars, that was my saying, you know, every four, come on, man, four bars. We gotta change it up. These kids will fall asleep on us, you know? It's great to see all these records on the streaming services and people get them and, you know, you see them up on YouTube and, the, you know, all the, the comments and everyone still loves them and they still sound, they still sound great, but it sounded great in the club, I'll tell you that. People that love that music from my era of when All Night Passion came out, it's like it's their best part of their youth. And the song could bring you back to those days in one second. Not only does my song, do, it does it for me, but there's so many other artists that I think about from that era and I love those songs, you know? I am humbled, honestly. I, I'm, I'm not a, a cocky kind of a person. It's a deep love inside that people know the music. I could tell all my passion from the first note of it. If it's coming on and I'm around people and I look around, it takes them a little while to know it. It's like I'm self-satisfied. I don't I don't need the people to know it's me, but I'm I'm satisfied and I'm proud and it's just all good things wrapped up in a little bow that I had this kind of career. I was lucky. I've had a lot of different situations, different clubs. I've been singing these songs for all these years and no, no two shows were ever the same. It's always a nice experience. It's just, I'm lucky to have had this career. I'm definitely lucky. I thank everybody, whoever liked my music from day one. It's something you can't forget. You know what I mean? It's just, it's hard to say thank you because it's, it's unbelievable that people really, it touched certain people, you know what I mean? But I know what that is because there's music that has touched me. So I, I, I get it, you know? Thanks to both Alicia and Mark Berry for their contributions to this episode. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was produced and hosted by yours truly, Diego Martinez. Our executive producer is Nicholas Nick Fresh Buzo, and our audio engineer is Adam Fogel. Follow Tunes all over social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TunesPod. That is C-H-O-O-N-S-P-O-D. Please rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts as it will help other folks discover our content. And subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Join us once more as we take a deep dive into another classic record on the next episode of Tunes.